Howdy. Thanks for listening to Let the Movie Speak. Before we get started, uh, we'd like to ask a favor of you. It's a simple favor. If you could just rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen, that might help other ears get into our ecosystem here and hear another episode. Anyway, enjoy the show. Use your partners for the Virginia Reel. We've sort of shocked the Confederacy, Scarlet. It's a little bit like blockade running, isn't it? It's worse. I expect a very fancy profit out of it. Well, I don't care what you expect or what they think. I'm going to dance and dance. Tonight I wouldn't mind dancing with Abe Lincoln himself. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a whoop. Can you imagine the difference one word would have meant? Not just for the film, which, adjusted for inflation, is still the highest grossing movie of all time but for cinematic history. And speaking of history, what do we do with the unpleasantness of old, outdated, or evil ideals? Gone with the Wind may be a classic, but it's not immune from criticism. Nor should it be. But does a movie like this, an incredible undertaking of spectacle, size, and yes, humanity, deserve the dumpster? Let the movie speak! Welcome, everybody, to our 10th and final episode of our first series. This is Let the Movie Speak. My name is Travis. I am Justin. And we are uh, happy to be at the finish line, um, but also happy to be looking towards the future. Right, Justin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what is what is our future, Travis? Do we actually have a future, or uh-huh. are we just kind of misguided is this getting existential uh i think we can uh at this point let's just let's reward the folks who have made it to episode 10 or the bandwagoner losers who have jumped in at episode 10 because they're massive gone with the wind fans or something uh those fools yeah would you like to uh do a a a quick uh reveal of our our next series it's going to be an abbreviated series not a 10 episode series sort of a a palate cleanser as we uh have kindly named it and uh Mm -hmm. i'll do a little drum roll for you and you can tell the folks what it is okay mr impresario it's heist movies right yes that's right friends we're going to be looking at uh Oh my gosh, now I forgot the actual total, Travis. Is it six? It's, six heist movies, I think? I think. We, I think we landed on six. Yeah, I mean, we might work a couple out in, you know, in the end here before we get started, but it's going to be a small handful of heist movies, uh, an eclectic mix, to say the least. And yeah. because we've been in a decade series, uh, you know, going through these first speaking films in the 1930s, um, and, you know, we've, 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 uh, we've poked some fun at ourselves in this uh, instance, right? Because... We know that like uh, your average podcast listener or person in our demographic, whatever that may be, uh, might not be looking for 10 movies from the 30s. Some of them I never heard before. That's what I want to listen to. So we decided to bring it down to earth a little bit more with this series, Justin. Yeah. I mean, and so we're not just sticking in one decade. Um, I think we start the earliest movie here for heists is uh, 1949's Crisscross. I think yeah. I got that right. Yes. And then we're going all the way up to uh, 2017. Hey, that's recent. It's the future. Uh, yes. And Baby Driver. Yes. Um, and some yeah. in a bunch so, of between. Uh, we are. Yeah, exactly. So we are um, excited and, and um, looking forward to 
getting that going. Um, I don't think we're taking much of a break, so um, if you're listening to this, it shouldn't be very long at all before those uh, episodes are, are available for listening. Yes, I'm excited to jump around decades after we've uh, just been solidly in the 30s and have enjoyed it, I think, immensely for the most part, uh, but it'll be fun to bounce around mm-hmm. and, and just see what the other decades have to offer, all tangentially related to some kind of heist plotline. I mean, there's there's straight up heist movies in there, and there's I mean I think we even got a Pink Panther movie in there because we both kind of mm-hmm. love that's right Peter Sellers as Clouseau. Um, and uh, if you haven't yet, if you are a, a loyal listener or again uh, a hop on the bandwagon person, if you could do us a solid, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you would just like. Uh, and subscribe obviously that way you know when a new episode hits you've got it right there in your pocket or wherever your phone lives <laughs> and uh also leave a rating mm-hmm. and review right next to your watch fob next to your watch fob where my phone lives forever yeah a rating and review mm-hmm. is super important mm-hmm. so we get more ratings and reviews and you know more people might hear the show and uh we work really hard and we're ha- we're proud of it and we'd love to see that happen but enough of that We are going to get into today's episode, which is Gone with the Wind. But before we do that, what did we watch this week? All right, old Justo, what did you watch this week other than Gone with the Wind? No, that that was it, Travis. Um, I don't know if you're aware, Gone with the Wind is freaking, you know, it took me 17 years to watch this movie, Travis. Um, and I did it yeah. all within a week, uh, which I'm told is not possible. Right. But um, I've done it. And uh, I mean, my gosh, I had to break it up, man. I could not do all four hours of this for <laughs> multiple yes. reasons uh, in one night. So um, uh, I, I am prepared to talk about that uh, ad nauseum. But uh, that's that's all I got, my friend. So I'm going to throw that tennis ball back to you. And uh, ask you the same question. What did you watch yes. this week? I'll tell you what I watched this week. But also, yes, I'm 57 years old now because I've watched Gone with the Wind. Uh, but other than Gone with the Wind, uh, oh, I think it was before okay. I even started watching Gone with the Wind. And I did break it up into two. It has an intermission, so it's fine. You know, um, the, uh, the thing that I caught <laughs> early on in the week, which was way shorter than Gone with the Wind, uh, the continuing saga of a show that we've talked about a couple times on here and have really liked up to this point, uh, WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. So uh, what is this? Episode four? Ugh. Episode four? Is that the latest one? I think so. Yeah, it's episode four. Yeah. Episode four, the garbage, in my opinion. <laughs> it's... Uh, my gosh. It just... Travis, it just goes back to... It, we've gone from innovative, creative, unusual storytelling, not just for Marvel, but just in general. And it's been really refreshing, really fun. And this fourth episode, I don't know what your take is, but it, it, (laughs) okay. So the end of the third episode, when, when, uh, uh, this character is like thrown out of whatever, you know, make believe world Wanda and vision are in. And then, you know, we see all these like helicopters and, you know, the typical kind of Marvel, like the government is approaching kind Mm -hmm. of scene. And uh, that's fine. There's like 20 seconds of it, and it's like, okay, I get it now. All these people are watching what goes on inside. Don't really, you know, interesting. Okay, for those 20 seconds, don't. I'm ready to get back to one division inside now. You know, in the next decade or whatever. And instead of doing that, 
They just spend freaking 30 minutes doing essentially a a big budget. And, oh, my gosh, it's like it's produced just like a Marvel movie. Yeah. Just exposition of everything we kind of already know or didn't need to know at all. And nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a missed. Like we talked about wasted episodes with The Mandalorian. This to me is a complete waste. Yeah, it's it's an episode full of deleted scenes or something like if they wanted to cut the show together differently and show you what was happening at the same time, that would be a way uh, worse show. Uh, but also, this is an episode for like th- this is the the showrunners, the producers, whoever decided. Okay, look, we've gotten three episodes in. It's weird, and we're not giving them a lot of information. We're we're leading people in in a, a pretty clear direction, in in my mind, but we're not spoon feeding them and saying, oh wait, don't forget. The audience is full of morons. So here's episode four to come along and, yeah, explain away, like, details that I never wanted an explanation for. And the explanation is so unsatisfying for many of these details, right? Like, I the, the scene where they're, like, transmitting on Ghostbusters machinery into the radio and they're literally cutting back <laughs> to what we've already seen. Like, I'm, I'm like... We, we understand like first of all your audience is not that dumb let them let them figure it out by the time you get to the season this is episode four you know if like at the end you feel like you might need to fill in some blanks to make some things make sense and make that part of your audience happy fine but this is like you know potentially midway through the season of if it's a normal length season of a television show and they've shown the entire hand right no, I totally agree, and and not just shown the hand, but uh, just taken. You talked about treating the audience like morons. I think that is really encapsulated in when two characters are together watching on the the Ghostbusters R Us, uh, whatever yeah. kind of equipment they have, and and one says to the other, "Oh, are they in the '60s now?" And I don't know why they sound like Conan O'Brien when he's doing a voice. But yeah. I mean, that's uh, th- that's. We love you, Conan. It's like no, no, my gosh, we don't, we we don't need to just stop. You know, I actually told the television several times. I said, "Stop." Yes. And and I thought I was Wanda, and I tried to change reality. And my wife said, "Take your medication and go back to bed." <laughs> and so I, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. But yeah, man, I just, what a bummer. So I really do hope that uh, the next episode is a return to form. I hope this is just a blip, a very unpleasant blip. But uh, at this point, I'm not holding my breath, unfortunately. No, it feels like you're watching a boxing match, right? And WandaVision is a boxer. And all the conventions of not just Marvel, but like you said, like storytelling and TV, they're the other boxer. And they just landed a complete right hook i do not honestly i loved the first three episodes of this i don't think this show can recover from how like annoyingly simplistic and stupid that episode was like how do you come back from that what are you going to not you know they introduced side characters that they clearly want to make a thing you know um, the what FBI right. is he FBI detect? No, he's from some made up agency, right? Yeah. What's that guy? No, the, the um, his, oh man, what is his name? Jimmy something, right? Yeah, I've seen him on. He's, he's, he's on. Very he's on Veep. Um, but uh, and he's it, he, I think he's actually in Ant Man. He's a small yeah. character in one of the Ant Man. Yeah, movies, he's some kind of a pull him in from the movies and get people to go. Oh, it's that guy. Um, yeah, and and the hack not right. hacker, but she's like a techie whatever she is. Like I found her 
to be she's just a magician and and obnoxious like just as a the way she played the yeah. part like she's very grating but they're clearly going to carry that stuff forward and ah man i'll i'll watch you know i'll watch it because yeah. the first two episodes are so good but i think that was it i think we got three right. amazing episodes of wandavision and the rest will just be you know <laughs> one helicarrier short of a helicarrier perhaps you know or something like that <laughs> I, I hope you're wrong, but I think you're right. Oh, great. Well, okay. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so from, from a multifaceted, interesting reality uh, to a, a different reality uh, in the pre-Civil War South, let's get into the Whopper, the one and only uh, Gone with the Wind. All right, so let's get into it, Justin. What the intro to the film section for Gone with the Wind? Uh, just be ready, listeners. Uh, this one might go long, Justin. I have a feeling. Yeah, it's a it's a ginormous story, not just in terms of runtime, but in scope, um, in in where these characters go and their journey. Um, and you know, there's also a, a, as a movie that's you know quote unquote one of the greatest of all time. Um, it, it deserves some special consideration and discussion, I think, especially in light of criticism that, that's not new to the movie. I think this movie has always had a, a smaller voice of criticism against it um, from di- different sections of our of our culture. Um, but the, those voices have become louder and more people are listening um, in more recent history. So uh, I, I think... Um, not not that we usually run out of things to talk about, but I think this will be more uh, an episode of just cutting cutting out things because we don't have time to talk about them. Right. Yeah. And we always, you know, I think if we compile the list, if we compile the list of the things we meant to talk about and didn't get around to, it would be a mile long. And there's no shortage of them in this film. If yeah. you're just talking about, you know, certain sequences or even whole storylines, I can't imagine. But what is your um, experience with Gone with the Wind, Justin? Is this the first time you've watched it? Yeah, this is the first time I've watched it. I can remember as a as a younger person seeing, you know, a couple scenes or something, probably when it was rerun on TV. Um, excuse me, and and I, um, you know, wanted to see this movie because again, I didn't really, even though it's considered a classic or whatever, and I sort of knew the basics of the story. Um, I never got around to it, and now that I've gotten around to it, I have mixed feelings. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, what was your take? Uh, this is my first go-around with the movie, and uh, I, again, I think you if, you if you're a movie nerd at any level, like you've seen some sequences or some shots or you've seen the, the <laughs> ubiquitous clip of Clark Gable saying, frankly, dear... I don't give a damn, you know, like that, that's, that's kind of everywhere Oscar real territory, but yeah, this is my first time certainly sitting down and watching it from beginning to end. Um, and for everybody at home listening, uh, this was a movie that had three directors, uh, three directors worked on this film, uh, credited director, Victor Fleming was the last of the bunch. I believe one of them uh, was kind of ousted on Clark Gable's wishes uh, because he hated what he was doing. And Clark Gable, uh, he was that guy, right? He could he could get rid of the director if he wanted to because he was sort of the moneymaker. Uh, but certainly Vivian Lee, uh, as the other lead, brought some star power and, and name recognition. And uh, just uh, overall, all the all of the character actors and, and supporting actors, it, it really is an ensemble cast with those two squarely at the center. 
um, pretty well known. And this movie, as we mentioned in the intro, was incredibly profitable, still adjusted for inflation, uh, the most profitable movie ever made. Uh, big Oscar sweep, eight, eight out of the 13 Oscars that it was nominated for. Um, and now is probably the time where we should get the intro part of this in that is perhaps more interesting than any of those nuts and bolts things. Um, the real uh, controversy surrounding Gone with the Wind, uh, I think, and Justin, jump in whenever you feel like you need to, uh, is that it, uh, I guess the criticism in general will be that it depicts uh, the South pre-Civil War in a way that is purely romanticized and, and uh, nostalgia-driven and uh, whitewashed in a way, right? Um, and I will say, while we're talking about our experience with the film, I think we watched this in two different uh, two different streaming services or, or different ways. So you, yes. you go first. You watched this in sort of like a fully unadulterated format, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Right. I just I watched this from a uh, streaming source. I think it was archive.org. Um, and so it was just an, an upload by somebody. And so it's just the entirety of the movie, including all those the intermission, etc. that I mentioned. Um, and there's no no prelude, no no sort of, you know, how Disney Plus uh, gives a warning now for all of their films and, and content that's older um, before yeah. you watch it. Um, there's not, none of that here. So I just saw it as it was originally shown. But I think you watched it on HBO Max. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Because that's a streaming service that I, I have already and use. And that's an interesting one because the, the recent controversy uh, that popped up uh, a little over a year ago, I think at this time, surrounded HBO Max because they had the film, the the public outcry became loud enough where HBO decided, okay, we need to do something about this. So they pulled the film from their streaming service and and promised that they weren't going to, you know, re-add it to the list of available films until they put a preface on the front of the film. And that's exactly what they did. Um, I don't know how long that took, but the version I saw opens with a uh, professor of African-American studies um, giving up, I would, I would, this is how I would classify it. Uh, you go watch it on HBO max if you want to, you know, form your own opinion here, but basically she just contextualizes the, f- the release of the film and the production of the film for us today. And there's some really important details in there that, that I, uh, valued and I didn't feel like biased, uh, you know, put a, put a particular bias on my intake of the story of this, of the movie. Uh, most notably, this movie was, uh, you know, protested upon the announcement of production. Like, um, you know, black audiences, um, there was an outcry from that community, certainly, um, that this was going to be made into a major motion picture to begin with. Uh, she has a quote at the beginning there that says, the film depicts a nostalgic, horror-defying view of slavery and perpetuates stereotypes of inept and loyal black characters. Um, that's that's a little bit more story based as far as a, a comment goes, but I think it's certainly pretty objectively true that it does depict a nostalgic horror defying view of slavery in particular. Uh, the things that I found most helpful were just contextualizing the release of the film. Black cast members weren't allowed to attend the premiere because Georgia had Jim Crow laws and they were segregated. So that's kind of nuts and uh, despicable to, to know and to think about now. Um, Heidi McDaniel, who famously won the first Oscar of any African-American actress, 
Uh, a couple things, you know, she was not allowed to sit with her white co-stars uh, until she went to pick up her Oscar. And then when she did, she read a, a speech that was written for her by the producers of the film. So, uh, you know, certainly some some details in there, Justin, that I think uh, people need to know. Uh, and I don't believe yeah. that this preface did anything uh, to damage my experience uh, or like my work that I no. needed to put in. Um, but it did offer um, some really important historical context. So um, that to me was the perfect call by HBO Max because they offered that historical contextual information and then they specifically made a point and said, now you're going to watch the unedited as released version of Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, an incredible landmark film, which is not a mutually exclusive thing to say from it depicts a nostalgic horror defying view right. of slavery, right? Um, so what, what's your take on the preface? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's the, the, the right thing to do. And I understand maybe some people do think, you know, no, the right thing to do is just throw this movie in the trash. But I don't, I don't think we would, especially because this does warrant discussion of those themes that that professor discussed in the intro of that film. Um, I think we have to kind of look these things in the face and see where have we come from and what, you know, what, what is, because what the movie is saying, right? What our podcast is about is going to indicate to us what, what larger cultural trends, what, you know, Americans thought, or, or in this case, maybe more, what, what did white America think um, uh, about this kind of story and its realism or lack thereof. So I, you know, it's unfortunate that I'm sure there's some people that are very upset that, um, and hopefully they're a minority, but are upset that that HBO would even have somebody, you know, give give a preface. But I think there's a HBO has hired this this person to who's an expert in her field, right? right? To give a a a thoughtful and an informed and and a somewhat authoritative opinion and an argument about, hey, this is, I mean, some of those things are not arguments, right? Like. Hattie McDaniel had to sit away from her white co-stars. Not an argument, just a fact of history. Um, all, all black people are shown as servile and happy. Mm, more of an argument, you know, that we'll we'll get into, hopefully, as we talk about this movie. But it's absolutely, I think it would be unfortunate to, to, to say, gosh, why would HBO ever do that? Because... You know, with the kind of trauma that America has gone through in the in the last couple of years, as it as it relates to race relationships, especially, um, this is kind of the bare minimum that they could do. You know, like right. uh, and and get away with it. In other words, like they have to do. You can't in the time that we live in. You can't just ignore it. You know, that's not going to be which we see, unfortunately, other people and other sectors of our culture trying to do. And sorry, I'm not trying to get too political, but. It seems a little inevitable with the kind of subject matter that we're we're talking about. So um, yeah, I think it's it's a good call, and it does invite viewers who are probably don't, don't you think, Travis? Most people they go to watch a movie and they don't hop on Wikipedia or IMDb right. after and go like, all right, let's find out what was going on in 1977. Mm-hmm. You know, they just want to enjoy the movie, and then th- that might be as much as they do. So I'm hopeful that. You know that kind of preface for people that at least watch it on HBO. It does get them get them thinking a little bit, if not if not convincing them. I I don't think that's trying to get them to appreciate the movie in a different way, and it's not trying to say this is I I because I mean I didn't I didn't watch the the uh, preface with you, but I don't think her argument was like 
this is a horrible movie. You know, this movie is, you know, just the worst. Um, it's a shame that it exists at all. Watch it if you're going to, I guess. No, you know, no, she's more trying to give you a much more thoughtful, like, this is what's going on. This is why there's been some controversy about it. Now watch the movie. And so I, th- I think that's a that's a respectful, and, and hopefully it, it, it allows for some viewers to be a little more informed as they go in so that they know why people why some people are clamoring for this to be you know quote-unquote canceled or right or what have you so yeah it, i think it's a it's a good it's a valid and it shouldn't be i don't think an offensive step you know if you're it, i i would just challenge if if you feel like maybe you're you're one of those people like gosh that's just way too far you know how dare hbo tell me how to think no 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 i i don't think hbo is telling you how to think nor is that professor they're just trying th- these are legitimate contextual issues that exist with the with the text or with the movie um and so i think to be aware of them is just going to make your experience of that movie that much richer frankly yeah um and and hopefully get you to appreciate different things yeah it to me it perfectly set the stage to begin watching the movie now if i had to look back uh, you know this is our 10th film of this decade and i i don't think there's a single one on the list uh, that I can look at and and not find some couple minute portion of our podcast or more where we haven't had to go, wow, that's 1930s for you, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's right. men and women, whether it's, you know, race uh, or, you know, just uh, any number of things that are thankfully in the past, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, certainly not in every way. And, you know, we need to strive for uh, a greater definition of justice, but the 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 stuff that this movie requires you to do like contextually is first of all just it's longer and it's dealing with the idea of the civil war breaking out and what happened after it it is much heavier lifting to do in that department so that feels like the right step for me um and i think it set the stage very well for me to enjoy the parts of this movie that i believe are unquestionably of merit uh and uh, you know, the quote that she had in there that really stuck with me from beginning uh, to the end was, this can be an incredible film to experience, and this can be an incredibly painful film to experience. Mm-hmm. And to be perfectly honest, you know, as a as a white dude, um, I needed to hear that. And at the same time, there is credit to be given to the author of the novel and the makers of the film as far as uh, most people's perception and take from this movie, it may differ from the authorial intent or the filmmaking intent, right? right. And we're going to get into that um, as far as how people take it on the whole. Um, but let's uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes uh, into the what's it saying section. How's that sound? Let's do it. So here we address uh, all the big stuff. How did it look? How did it sound? Uh, Do we like the story? Do we like the acting? Um, All of that good stuff. And the first thing before we get to any characters, any plot is color, right? We've watched (laughs) nine black and white movies, all uh, pretty uh, fun experiences. But man, when the when the screen opens up this i mean we've been living with these movies now justin for for weeks and weeks right. and weeks and and a, a few months now 
for me to watch, it's not the only thing I've watched in color in that time period, but you know, I'm getting ready to do my podcast prep, watching, note-taking, all that, and it's like, bam, and huge vista, and not just color, but like, this is a beautifully photographed color film. Like, there are way uglier movies that came out last year than something like this. So Absolutely. what was what was your like response to that, uh, having been stuck in the black and white ages for a while? Yeah, you know, again, like you, because that's not the only thing I have um, watched recently that was in color. It didn't, I guess I was in a slightly different frame of mind where I'm, I'm expecting color. But even so, this movie just slaps you awake or throws a bucket of, you know, cold color water on you. Yeah. Um, there is no denying that it is... It, you know, part of the reason I think this movie is regarded as a classic is is in no small part due to how beautifully it's shot. They this isn't just done in color as like, and and you would think with one of the first color movies um, that was wide released that you know well they're just kind of figuring it out. They're gonna you know no. I mean for for being as old as it is and one of the forerunners of that uh, technology, I guess we'll call it. Uh, it's incredible. They knew exactly what they were doing. It's right. almost like painters. Um, and so, you know, it, it just makes the silhouettes pop that much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my goodness, it is just a, uh, un- unlike we, we quoted um, Jimmy Stewart talking about colorizing, um, gone, uh, not Gone with the Wind, but It's a Wonderful Life yeah. and, you know, disdaining it as a as a bath of, you know, Easter egg paint or something like that. Yeah. This is not that. This is vibrant with the, with the colors of life. Yeah. So, Yeah, it's like it would be forgivable, right, for like this or The Wizard of Oz, for that matter, which came out in the same year and was, you know, as big of a, a, a film touchstone in many ways. It would be acceptable for either of those films to be like, wow, that's in color, but that's kind of where it ends. But, you know, I'm not going to speak for The Wizard of Oz at the moment, but this is, you know, even if this was shot in black and white, it would be so thoughtfully constructed, like visually. Uh, And the fact that it is in color, that like you were saying, they make full use of it and take full advantage of that within the form that they're in, you know. And uh, yeah, so that, that jumped off the screen immediately to me. Um, another thing that jumped off the screen immediately to me and I think uh, <laughs> gave me a little bit of the willies as far as what am I in for is that opening uh, narrate, oh boy. narration crawl. Yeah, um, And I actually happen to have it in front of me here because uh, this book does appear in Roger Ebert, The Great Movies. Good old Roger Ebert uh, giving us some words of wisdom again from the great beyond. Uh, this is the opening crawl. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. And you know what they forgot to do, Travis, was put, thank goodness, at the end. (laughs) That's it. Um, Yeah. It just gave me, like you, it it made me want to, you know, I was really scared, frankly, um, when that came up on the screen and, you know, look for it no more. I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck are we in for? You know, I was thinking that the very worst accusations that were being leveled at this movie were, must be unequivocally true. Um, And and I think it's some of the the key key words in there, right? Gallantry took its last bow. What? Gallantry? Are you talking about, you know, and and of course, you know, uh, holistically, I'm just, I'm not saying this to try to appease anybody, but I'm sure just because of the vast amount, unfortunately, of of slavery that was in the U.S. 
probably not every slave was treated the same, good, bad, and indifferent, right? However, we know that maybe most, I don't know how we want to, I'm not going to tack a percentage on that because I'm not a, a historian, but there was some horrific atrocities where people are treated worse than animals or livestock um, that are going on. So so to say, here's a time of gallantry, how, how tone deaf can you be? Right. You know, it, it'd be like, you know, oh, here come the... Here come the Nazis. Ah, well, there goes the last of color in 1945, right. you know, when the Third Reich took it. It's like, no, my goodness, no. So, so yeah, the, the gallantry is what really rubs me, I think, the rawest there. And, yeah. and that it says, uh, knights and their ladies fair. Um, okay. But then master and slave, like, uh, why, yeah. would we, why would we be bemoaning that? You yeah. know, it's, it's kind of shocking, frankly, to read that. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I, I agree. I, my, uh, I had to take a Tums after I read it because I was like, there's three hours and 40-something <laughs> minutes left. And, uh, <laughs> is it just going to make me angry for that time? Or is something going to evolve before my eyes? And I think you'll find, right, if you stop there, you should be angry. Like you should be upset. You should have the reaction that I think yes. a lot of folks uh, have and uh, perhaps latched onto. Um, but it does tell a sweeping, grand story that uh, you know. Let's not bury the lead here. It's a tragic, horrific, sad Absolutely. story, right? And so the the juxtaposition, which. I'm not prepared to give credit that that is an intentional juxtaposition. That's where I'm at. But there is a juxtaposition mm-hmm. between what you read there and everything you see that follows. Yes. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. It, it, it's a tragedy 100%. So I guess we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. So um, who do we have here? Um, let's talk about uh, – we'll, we'll do sort of a – uh, a light brush stroke over some casting and performances. And then as we get into story, we'll talk about, you know, the character's kind of function and purpose. But we have, you know, uh, Clark Gable's in this movie. Not sure if you knew that. Uh, he plays Rhett Butler. Um, we have <laughs> Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara. And then um, beyond that, the people that occupy the screen in story time, um, Thomas Mitchell as Gerald O'Hara, her father. Um, Barbara O'Neill as Ellen, his wife, which she's kind of a small, a smaller part. Um, and who, oh, there's so many, geez, obviously Hattie McDaniel as Leslie Howard, right? Yes. Uh, Leslie Howard as Ashley. Um, and then there's a bunch of, uh, siblings and cousins and other folks who come in and out. There's, um, sort of the, the slave characters who, who last the bulk of the film. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about why that is, um, Hattie McDaniel is Mammy, Oscar Polk is Pork, and Butterfly McQueen is Prissy. Uh, those are the three that we spend a good amount of time with, arguably not enough uh, time with, but we'll we'll yeah. get there in in due time. Um, oh, who's the the last one I want to mention is duh. is it Olivia? Yeah, duh. Um, and that uh, that kind of core group uh, are the ones who quite literally survive. Uh, you know the tale. Um, not, not all of them, but like the, you know, the bulk of the screen time and whatnot. I think I would classify the acting in this movie as anywhere from good to great kind of all the time. Yeah. Um, nobody isn't pulling their weight 
And uh, it's clearly of note. Heidi McDaniel won Best Supporting Actress as the first African-American ever. That's an, an immense achievement. And there's no question she earns the crap out of her Oscar in this movie. It's an incredible Absolutely. performance. Um, so story-wise, we've got, you know, um, the uh, picturesque uh, colonial uh, uh, plantation south, rather. Plantation south. Um, and some sort of relationship drama. Uh, let's talk about the central character here, Scarlett O'Hara, played by Vivian Lee. Um, we did a, a Wuthering Heights episode uh, a couple couple weeks ago, Justin. Do you remember Wuthering Heights? Uh, unfortunately, I yeah. do. Um, there might be some some overlap. I think where where you might be going with that is from from scene one, Scarlett O'Hara is portrayed as a completely self-absorbed evil person. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and uh and and it's interesting and and of course we bring up Wuthering Heights because several characters in there are the same. But it's interesting to me that if you if you watched that this movie Gone with the Wind and and you were like, "Boy, I I wanted isn't wasn't Scarlet a wonderful character? I want to be like her or whatever." I would say you missed you missed the point um completely right because that that this character is so selfish and so i mean the 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 levels that she will stoop to to get her own way involve sacrificing literally other people's lives um intentionally and unintentionally yeah and so to me that suggests this person is that way because she's been brought up in the society in this culture that has said you are above other human beings who will serve you at, at your beck and call and will do everything for you. How the heck is that going to breed anyone of good and noble character? Right. And so, like you said, whether intentionally or not, to me, her character is the most, although other characters are too, but she's the most flagrant display of what the heck. Well, I mean, there's many things wrong with the Old South, right? Yeah. But her character is like, this is this is the product. And she's like the belle of the ball all the time, right? But holy crap, if she's the bell of the ball, if she's the best the South has to offer, then I'm glad the South took its last bow and wish it took its last bow quite a bit earlier, frankly. Right, right, of course. Yeah, and I mean, her whole character, really, from moment one through, you could at least argue the first half of the film, but really it doesn't ever really go away until maybe the last moment. And maybe not even then, right? The the film ends ambiguously as it sort of semi-ends in many places, is she finds her identity and certainly uh, superiority over you know black folks and slavery. That's plantation culture for you, uh, the servitude factor and all that. But she finds her value in like finding her love and getting married and living that picturesque plantation, you know, antebellum South sort of oil painting life. And for that reason, I just could not help but see her as some sort of you know analog of Catherine in Wuthering Heights right like her, the character is purely yeah. driven by um, if I could just find this uh, this amorphous thing called love that I you know define for myself and get it the way I yeah. want it no matter what the cost um, I, I I will be happy then and that's just it's it's a it's a sad uh, thing to watch play out in many ways um, so obviously her first love and arguably only love question mark is Ashley, um, who is about to be engaged to another. And we're going to see her, <laughs> her, her 
understanding of marriage and her usage of marriage is really transactional, to say the least, wouldn't you say, Justin? Absolutely. I mean, the first person that she marries, she does so just to, as she later tells Ashley, just to make him jealous. Well, good job, lady. Um, you know, and unfortunately, that uh, that marriage doesn't. Well, fortunately, maybe. Um, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. That marriage is very short, as her first husband is quickly killed in the ensuing battle of the um, of the the Civil War. And it, you know, I don't want to steer us away, Travis, from from the point about marriage, um, because I think there's a lot to talk about there and how she treats that union. Right. But that does remind me, her husband being killed so early in the movie. You know, for, for a movie, again, that, that supposedly idealizes the South, it is, I think, of note that when it, there's a very early scene when, um, oh my gosh, this scene, we could talk about so much here, when, when all the men are downstairs yeah. talking about the war and the impending war and the women are upstairs taking a nap and all these little, like, I mean, little girls that, that are African-American, little slave girls yeah. are fanning them with feathers. Oh, yeah. To me, that's that's not played for laughs, no. right? And 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 hey, maybe that's just because I'm in I'm in the next century now. But it, it's like it's tragic to watch, and it's like, man, these poor these kids just look like I want to kill myself. You know, yeah. I've been doing this for three hours, and so I think even in a small way, the movie shows like this is not a good thing. You know, yeah. Um, and, and so it would be one thing if the kids were just like, oh boy, what what do you need, Miss Scarlet, or whatever. You know, but they're they're not. They just look like zombies. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting that. That that little note is in there, and then going back to the men downstairs, they're they're all talking about the war, and the consensus is the South is going to whip those Yankees into shape. Uh, we've got this in the bag, and the only two characters in the movie, uh, Clark Gable's Rhett Butler and Leslie Howard's Ashley, they're the only two that say, mm, you know, probably not, and and they right. say that for different reasons, right? Leslie or, or Ashley has this more more kind of. Um, not not pragmatic, but maybe a more emotional or a, or mo- more poetic kind of um, reality of war. Like guys, war's not going to be a good thing. You yeah. know, war just leads to. It's one thing to think you're going to fight for your cause, and and he admits like I I'll I'll go and I'll, right. I'll fight, but I'm not going to be happy about that. It's going to bring a lot of sorrow. Yeah, he says the line is most of the miseries of the world were caused by war, and when they were over, yes. no one knew what they were about, which is killer good like it is yeah it is saying in that one sentence like what the grand illusion said in its entire runtime you know uh so right th- it certainly presents um uh and i think we'll we'll keep hammering this point right yes the, yes the confederate you know folks in this are fighting for something bad a culture that should not be upheld and all of that and um you could you could view it and uh perhaps take it as the movie is glorifying their cause but i think it kind of tells you over and over right through nuanced layered ways through Rhett and through ashley and through the depiction of war and the i think the masterful way in which it says over and over and over again war is hell war is terrible people are being blown to pieces people are dying who who cares about the cause if it causes this much destruction right that is that is a very complicated statement it is not simple no, not at all. And and Rhett gives a a little bit of a simpler, more pragmatic kind of approach, uh, you know, which is still I, and I don't think it's made up. Um, I think it bears a lot of lot of truth in history. He says, "Look, guys, 
you may have all the fighting spirit you you think you can muster, uh-huh. but the North has actual this thing called industry, and you don't. And so uh, he who is able to make the most guns and arm the most people is going to win. Um, and so it's it's you know his is not altruistic. He does not have anything you know deeply <laughs> meaningful like Ashley does, right. which you just read. But it's interesting to me that those two characters are who are essentially the two male leads in this movie. Right. Tell the audience the South is doomed, and this war is not going to bring anything good. Yeah, he, um, he. <laughs> I have to say now, uh, before we get too far into Rhett Butler, it is it is impossible for me not to look at this character, Rhett Butler. He comes on the scene immediately. He's introduced as a man with a bad reputation, bad intentions, a, a sketchy history. Yeah, he specifically calls it out. He says, "I believe in Rhett Butler." Right? He's only in this per- for profit, he'll say in a scene just a little bit later. This is Han Solo. Like, I mean, come on. Like, in right. so many ways, he is the pirate of the movie. Like, yep. he he is out there for himself. He is going to look after his uh, strategic interests and his, you know, financial interests even. Uh, it's just funny to me, that parallel. Like, I don't know how you have Han Solo without Rhett Butler. Right, and he has that Wookiee with him too, which is yeah. really, um, I, yeah. I, I don't gr- think most people are aware of Groundbreaking that, for the time, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, Clark Gable comes on the scene as Rhett Butler, immediately has what looks like eyes for Scarlett O'Hara, and that is going to be sort of the genesis of the rest of the drama of the story in many ways. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the casualty list scene. So there's there's a lot that happens between uh, the the opening barbecue. Uh, this little thing happens called the Civil War starts. Uh, men go to you know <laughs> all of them that we see basically enlist, uh, and then her husband gets killed very quickly. They it's like they're married, and then boom, you see a letter on screen. He's dead. Uh, she's not super sad about it. She's not really in mourning. She's even complaining about having to be in mourning. Um, and then we find her at a, uh, a dance, uh, sort of event and she's not dancing, but she'd like to be dancing. Um, and Rhett, uh, Rhett shows back up again. Right. And so what, what, what do you, what do you have to say about Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara and maybe his intentions or something like that? Yeah. He, well, as far as they're related, at least it seems, uh, um, appropriate to say game knows game, you know? And so he, he pegs her for what she is from the get-go and, and lets her yeah. know in no uncertain terms. He doesn't try to woo her with, you know, fake affections or or gifts or anything. He just says, you know, you're you're just as selfish as me. Um, you're only in this for you. So I, I'm not into marriage. Um, I just want to be selfish with you. And, uh, you know, so he has no nobility. Right. Excuse me. He has no nobility with her. Um, but And so she's resistant to that because... In her selfish view, not not for any moral reasons, but in her selfish view, that's not what love is supposed to look like. You know, not that her her image of love is really pure or right. good, but it's just not not what she wants. So yeah. she rejects him. But the first kind of way in which you see that barrier start to be broke down is, like you said, when they're at this ball together and she's in her morning clothes. And Rhett Butler flies the Millennium Falcon in. Again, another yeah. weird kind of, you know, you should have seen that coming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, all right, stay with... I don't think he was called Chewy. I think he was called Dewey. Dewey. So, you yeah. know, obviously, 
George took a little license there. But yeah. Rhett Butler comes to the ball, and, and she tries to kind of avoid him, but then they end up dancing together, and it's very scandalous. And I think done to good good humorous use of, you know, how offended um, some people in, in, in that culture were, yeah. you know, in her family or friend's circle. Like, how could she be dancing in her funeral clothes, you know? Right. Um, and then they have this very elaborate... I, I don't know about you, but, you know, because I know very little about choreography or whatever... But as I was watching that dance that they were doing, which is um, quite a bit different from twerking, which I hear the kids are into now. Yeah, that was Civil um, War twerking, it, yes. C- Civil War twerking, yeah. And so it just the, the uh, again, n- not necessarily one of the most impressive sequences of the movie, but just another, it, it's kind of a bygone era where that amount of choreography was just a given. You know, right. this is not a dancing movie. But there, it's kind of elaborate, you know. What, what is pulled off, at least in my opinion, I'm, yeah. I'm not an expert, so maybe, uh, maybe one of our experts can come on and mm-hmm. tell me I'm, I'm very foolish and wrong. But. It's kind of wild, though, like to see, you know, we've seen Clark Gable in, you know, like it happened one night, and obviously he was this massive star at this time, but he's not known as like Fred Astaire by any means, right? It's not like right. the artist with. Uh, um, what's his name? Jean Desjardins, uh, you know, where he's like dancing is sort of a, a big part of his repertoire. Uh, but then he just like goes for it. And I'm like, this is even yeah. an old Clark Gable, you know, and he just right. like jumps in there and looks like he's done it every day of his life. It is really like, a, that is a like cultural thing that you see now. And you're like, wow, everyone can dance almost like in, uh, in, it happened one night when we were like, wow, everyone could sing. It's 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 a similar right. dynamic to that. And um, I think that, you know, we're going to we're going to really like land on a few key scenes that affected us. And I, I, I'm going to I'm going to tee that off um, by saying the scene when they get the casualty list is one of those scenes. In oh, this movie, gosh. Right. That says to me, the most compelling theme is. Uh, of any war movie should the, the taste left in your mouth, right? The thing you walk away with should be, we should always do everything possible as human beings to avoid this horrific thing we know called war. Right. Yeah. And if the movie doesn't do that, it's irresponsible bar none. Like there's no question in my mind. Right. Um, and this scene does that immediately, right? Like you see this huge horde of people coming uh, to just get a list and see if their loved one is on that list of casualties. And I got to tell you, I've been reading Charles Dickens' uh, The Tale of, Two, a Tale of Two Cities, and it reminds me of a very specific scene from that novel where uh, you know Dickens is talking about pre-Revolutionary War uh, France, and it's the first time in the novel you you get to see or read of Paris. And there's this sequence where uh, he's just describing a guy who's taking this large cask of wine and he drops the, the barrel in the street and it cracks all over the sidewalk and spills into the little cobblestone, you know, and makes little trails and little streams. And he just describes, right, like the poor, impoverished, dirty people that fill the streets coming to, to lap it up right with their mouths and with their hands and to suck off the piece uh the, the broken pieces of wood that that wine and and there's a line in that section where he says and as much mud was taken up as wine in that moment or something like that mm. and to me I'm watching this scene where there this is for this cultural context this is that moment right everybody's gathered around they're waiting for that casualty list and then as they grab it you just see what has become of 
a society where things have gone awry for a very particular reason. And Rhett reveals his hand over and over and over again. Like you said, he's very pragmatic, right? He sees these people weeping and he doesn't really have a ton of compassion on them. He said, look at this miserable lot of people. And then he says, uh, the South is singing to its knees. It'll never rise again. Like we're not even done with the war yet. And he's looking around saying like, this is a complete waste of time. And he's fighting, right? And he's not yeah. fighting for the South. He's fighting for himself. But but man, that, that scene got me. I don't know about you. No, it absolutely did. And for, for much the same ways, I found the most powerful thing in there uh, of that scene personally to be when the there's an older couple and he's in uniform, you know, they're both gray haired and they get the, you know, the notice that their son um, has, has been killed. And it, it totally, to me, it, it rightly humanizes the cost of war. I don't feel bad for those people because they're Southerners. That has, it's really irrelevant. I feel bad because these, this is a mother and a father that have just lost their son, frankly, for no good reason. Yeah. You know? And and it's done so it yeah it's it's beautiful because it, I mean it's tragic I'm not it's not beautiful because it's a good thing but it's a beautiful reminder of what you said that that the cost of this as the movie will say over and over again like I'm sure we're going to talk about that wide shot when she walks through all yeah. of the injured and it's it's to me that's not like oh darn the poor southerners you know it's like oh my gosh these poor people. Why, why the heck would we, again, whatever, whatever the audience thinks it's trying to say, what, what I, what I think the movie is actually saying is that this is futile. Yeah. This war is, it's, it was, I mean, yes, it's, it's, if, if half of the nation is saying, nope, we want slaves, we're leaving, you didn't leave a lot of room for, for ambiguity or, or options, you know, for the other half of the nation. But at the same time, it's like, why? was that really worth it? Is it that important to you that you want your sons and your daughters and, you know, people just to die so that you can own other people? It's, it's, uh, again, it's one of those, if you kind of want to deconstruct it, I don't see that as like, oh boy, well, that's just too bad that they had to suffer that way. The poor Southerners, you know, it's more like this is, this is the true cost of this war and it could have been avoided. Yeah, let's let's while we're on that subject, let's just go back to back to back with three of those scenes. Okay, that will be the first one, right? The I think the casualty list scene for me is the the first kind of really like pillar of it holds up that theme in such a strong way that like on that merit alone, uh, it's saying something valuable, right? And we're not even in the wrap up section yet, but but to me that is super super important. The second scene like that is the scene you alluded to, right? Like we see her come in contact with really the horrors of war on a massive scale, right? When she's watching the casualty list go up. But what's she doing in that scene? She's just wanting to see if the person she loves who's married to this, you know, person who's very close and dear to her, uh, that she secretly loves this man, is, is as long as he's not on the list, she's kind of okay. She's not really all that affected by this, right? She's not that touched by it. But the next scene, I think, is a little different, right? Now, you can make the argument that Scarlett O'Hara doesn't have a a massively bending arc in this film, but I do think she has moments where things wash over her and and vicariously us, the audience, and that wide shot, okay? She's walking through the streets of Atlanta after Gettysburg, if I'm not mistaken, and it pulls out and pulls out, and it... 
I don't know what the camera was on. I don't know what lens they were using. I don't know how many people were laying in that street, but it's just body after body after body and just like maimed, wounded, just gray uniforms everywhere. And she's just this ant just walking through the center of it. That was jaw dropping to me. Like I have never seen something so effective in what it was trying to do as that wide shot. Absolutely. And the scale of that, of this movie at times is, I mean, it's second to none. I don't think a lot of things that have been done in this movie have really been equaled or tried, frankly, since then. Right. Just the amount of actors that you would have to have on screen for that shot is, is tremendous. Yeah. Um, and, and to have them all not, you know, goofing off or whatever. I yeah. mean, it's just it. So as a cinematic achievement, I think I would agree with you. It's it's not only affecting, but just it's jaw dropping because of the amount of work that had to go just to set up that shot. Yeah. And so when you that shot pulls all the way out and you see the tattered Confederate flag again, I don't see that as like, darn it. Wouldn't that be good if that flag was still flying? I see that more as like you you know, I mean, not, you know, I have a Yankee accent, right? So maybe this sounds a little heartless, but it's like you stupid people that wanted this, whatever yeah. politicians you were, whoever you were that supported that flag, you've brought your own hell upon you. Yeah. And this is the consequence of holding allegiance to that flag. Yeah, exactly. So I don't I, I, I don't see it as, you know, because I've heard some other people, some very smart people try to argue that that specific scene reinforces the lost cause mythology where you know the south was fighting nobly and just unfortunately outmatched right no i i i see that as like how can you look at those you know hundreds or thousands of bodies out there and that flag and be and have anything but disdain for the powers that be that put those men and women there yeah and it's a it's it's such an important movie that i think it's worth fighting over in this way right because I, yeah. I can see it from both ways, right? Like whether the authorial intent was what you described or not as a reappraisal right. of historical film landmark thing, right? Like we should be able to look at this now and say, maybe, maybe the DP for that shot thought, you know what? We're going to engender a specific Southern sympathy here, but we can look at it now, right? right? And we can reclaim the meaning of that shot if that was what it was initially. And we can say like, look at it look at the torn tattered confederate flag and look at the mass of bodies in its wake cause and effect it's a a to b you know what i mean like uh so i agree that 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 goes down in the history books for me as like i literally my mouth was open i could not believe it that the camera just kept pulling back and you just see her right and think about the symbolism here she is like dead center in the shot and as it pulls back scarlet becomes smaller and the, the the hell around her becomes bigger. And I, I think I'm a, a applying an okay interpretation to this. Like in that moment, at least for a time, you know, in, in that in that horrible thing she was walking through, she didn't just see herself and her wants and her wishes and her love identity and all that. She saw what we saw, which is the scope and scale mm. of, of this stuff. The third sequence of, uh, again, driving point this home that like there if you're yeah i think you said this before but if you are about ready to like pick up a a gun or a sword or an object right and go to war against another human being prepared to end their life you must understand right what the the sacred life that you're about to destroy really means and that is the like makeshift hospital scene in the in the church in the chapel 
Um, oh boy. Yeah, where she is playing nurse, albeit not very well, because this is again she's she's been chewed up and spit out by everything that's happening around her, and this is a more detailed like close up version of the same kind of thing where we see the doctor going from person to person and just saying like. Uh, you know, the, the, the wounded and the injured are, I, I need something for the pain doctor. I need something for, you know, I, I'm sorry. We, we have nothing for you. You know, we have nothing for you. And there's a particular case of a man uh, whose leg is injured. And um, that is the moment that oh, I can hardly talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It, it's in, it, you know, leading up to that Travis where she's walking through with the doctor and he's tending to these people. It's a really, I think this movie does a great job of of showing the pain of war without, you know, Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or whatever has its has its place. But I think, unfortunately, with those movies, now it's become expected, like, if you're going to truly show the horror of war, you're going to show the guts and the young boys are going to be holding them and screaming for mama. And it's like, okay, yes, that that's a real thing, and that's absolutely horrific, However, I, I think it's it also becomes a, a trap of gratuity, yeah, um, and just uh, horrific in in like a slasher film kind of way where it's not it's not horrific because it's necessarily scary. It just becomes gross after a while, and sure. you, you get desensitized to it, which is I think the opposite effect of what filmmakers are going for. So contrast that with this movie where she's walking through. And you just see these guys that are laying in bed and one guy has absolutely lost his mind and is, you know, like literally playing with his lips with his fingers. Um, it's just, you know, the the cost of war is, is again, fully on display and albeit in a different way. And I think the, those shots of, you know, she's she goes by some other men that are injured before she gets to the, the specific scene you mentioned. And it just, in, in not extremely graphic, but in, in very calculated telling ways it says you know wounds of war are different it's not all hey my my large intestine is hanging out right it's mental it's physical it's emotional you know and so then the doctor there's kind of this um it, there's a little bit of lead up to to the specific scene where the doctor goes to this guy and is like you know he's got he's got gangrene and i think we're gonna have to lose the leg and, you know, my, my grandfather actually has a lot of, uh, he's very much into the, the Old West and history of the Civil War, etc. So he had kind of a library of um, books about these things. And I remember as a kid reading one of these books about um, medical equipment and, and the kind of process of medicine in the, in the Civil War and post-Civil War era until we really get to, you know, essentially 1900. And so often, unfortunately, these guys, um, they would be very quick to take the leg or the arm yeah. because they didn't know how to stop infections. And so whether or not that was that was right, I mean, frankly, the, the book that I read, I recall it saying, you know, probably a lot more people lost appendages than needed to simply uh -huh. because th they knew how to, if they did that, they could stop it and they didn't really know how else to treat it and they didn't right. want to, you know, lose life. So this this doctor is is going that route. Hey, this guy's got gangrene. I'm gonna have to take the leg, and he doesn't have any kind of pain relief or anything to give him. So they they go to this larger operating room, and the the shot it's perfect because it's like this vaulted ceiling kind of. Yeah. So there's just this infinite space for this guy's screams to go up, and as he realizes what the doctor is going to do, and as Scarlet approaches the room. He starts screaming bloody murder. Don't take my leg. Please stop. It's it's truly one of the most 
uh, it, to this day. It's it's so affecting because you don't even see the guy's face, Travis. You no. don't even see his shot above where you see the doctor standing over him and you see Scarlet standing horrified in the doorway and unable to, to confront that any further. But his his screams, I can still hear them, you know? And right. it's just a movie. It's I, I know they're actors, but it is it is so affecting because it captures the truth of that kind of... Again, that scream isn't just for, uh, I really don't want to lose my leg right now. Mm-hmm. It's for, how did I get here? I just want to be back with, with my family, wherever they are. I don't I don't want to be a part of this war. I don't want any more of this this sin or whatever that's in the world that's causing this. Yeah. I just want to be done. And it's so there's so much in those in those screams and in the way that's shot that I mean, just like you, Travis, it still it I don't I I think you kind of have to be inhuman to not be affected by that scene. Yeah, and there's a final detail in that sequence that I did not miss, and I wrote it down. She, you know, is supposed to go and help with the amputation, and she can't. Right, she has to leave because of that right. moment that you described, and she. She walks very slowly, traumatized herself, right, as one would be, out of that room. And as she actually exits the archway for that chapel, there's an inscription above the door that says, Peace be within thy walls. And I just yeah. thought, I just thought, okay, set designer A plus. Like you right. n- nailed it. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like this is this is uh, about so much more than a church supposed to being a, a supposed to be a, a, being a peaceful place it's it's you know what have we done to each other you know and uh yeah there's there's you could write uh several essays on the effectiveness of those sequences in the movie um and then you know hey the movie keeps going it just keeps going and going and going it's like the <laughs> freaking energizer bunny of of 1939 and uh it really does kind of find its way you know, as the war comes to a close, um, eventually in the, the the story, we have, you know, the burning of Atlanta happens shortly after that, which kind of reunites Scarlet and Rhett. Um, and we are back into the uh, relational drama that is sort of, uh, I would I would love for it to be categorized as the sub-block, subplot, but it's sort of the other way around. Um, and right. this is a good moment to, for me to sort of, I'm going to detach for a second because I've said a lot of really... Uh, glowing things about how it it knocked this theme out of the park. I have a really hard time with stories that I can't find a character um, that the movie is telling me to spend time with and perhaps care about that I just don't like. You know what I mean? And these are some flawed characters up and down the list um, other than, you know, save a couple who are pretty, pretty noble and true. Um, But Rhett and Scarlet specifically, we've already talked about how, how, absurdly um, (laughs) selfish Scarlet is and remains for much of the film, uh, if not all of it. And Rhett is really his own version of the same thing. You know, he has this speech before uh, they do kiss out on the, uh, you know, before she gets back to her home. Um, And it's gross. I mean, it is, it is, it is a moment of him trying to seize what he wants, and then he he has a moment, right? And I'll let you uh, interpret this if you want it differently. But he has a moment where he he does feel some guilt, like I need to go and you know kind of fight back for the cause or or whatever, whatever that's worth. But his last thing to her is like, "Can you just give me a kiss before I go? A kiss to remember you by, or something like that." And he forces himself uh, upon her, essentially, right? So we see again right. more perpetuation of uh, certainly. 
um, the decade in which this was released and the decade that the story is talking about where, you know, we see a dehumanizing of uh, black folks and, and, you know, anyone who is a slave. Um, you could argue not enough in this movie, but certainly we do see it, like you mentioned, in that scene with the little girl with the fan and just the way that they're spoken to and referred to, right? Like that is that is verbal abuse uh, uh, enough to tell you something, um, even if it's not the kind of movie centered around, uh, you know, uh, lynching or whipping or that those, you know, most horrific sort of uh, horrors of, of the time of, of slavery in America. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it, it never goes away for me. It really never goes away. You know, Rhett and Scarlet are toxic and they're, they're toxic individually and they're toxic to each other. And yes, they're complicated. And yes, Clark Gable pulls the strings on what the script is giving him. Uh, but in the end, um, I didn't really ever find anyone that I, I really uh, I liked who, who survived anyway what do you what do you think right yeah i mean the only person that is really likable in this yeah that survived uh would be mammy i think yeah um and uh with the regards to that scene where where Rhett is leaving scarlet and forcing himself on her i would completely agree with you know i if we can do a modern reprisal of that uh or reappraisal rather i i i see his wanting to go fight for the cause or, or whatever we're going to call that, where he feels guilty and he calls himself a coward. I see that as his character trying to trying to work beyond his own selfishness, uh-huh. but having no clue what to do. Right. Right. It's not the right choice to go fight for the South when it's on its last legs. No. I mean, unless you're Rhett Butler and you're so selfish and all of a sudden you kind of have an epiphany, like, I, I wait a minute. It, maybe maybe life is about living outside of yourself and living for something that's not just internal, right? But unfortunately, he's not. It, it's not. Oh, let me go fight for the good guys or go help in some actual noble way. Yeah. Let me go to the hospital and help the the dead and the dying. No, I'm gonna go. You know, pick up a gun. And so again, I I I think he's either he's either confused or <laughs> or he is. Um, well, he's just he's just wrong. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and so I, I, yeah, I, d- I don't find him having his, his character, I think vacillates a little more than Scarlet's in terms of trying to do the right thing, whatever that looks like, Yeah. but he never gets there either. Yeah. And, and so I would agree that the people that you, you like the most, um, I think Melanie, uh, of, of the, the white cast anyway, right. is probably the, the most noble and, and you, you know, I mean, she she's willing to uh, of other social conventions of that time. She's labeled as such a good-hearted and kind person. It's not beneath her to talk to the uh, the harlot or you know whatever yeah. that uh, that Rhett is so often in the company of. Mm-hmm. While that scandalizes other people, including Scarlet, it's it's not beneath her. And uh, I I think uh, Dame Olivia de Havilland uh, pulls off that that character um, extraordinarily well. As yeah. you mentioned, no one in here is really acting poorly, and she's just another another example of that. But unfortunately, besides besides her, really, there's no one there's no one else where you go, oh gosh, what a what a wonderful character. Because even people like like uh, uh, Ashley, he's right. just he's so tragic. It's kind of pathetic. Yeah. Um. And and it becomes not really. And it's just like so. So there's a really interesting scene I think Travis when when uh. She, uh, Scarlett, and Ashley are talking about running her lumber mill. Yeah. And there is this, another Irishman that comes in with a, a work crew of convicts. Mm-hmm. And 
And he's saying, you know, hey, you, I'll, I'll, this is the rate I'll charge, but you got to let me do my thing. In other words, I'm going to abuse these guys as much as I need to to get what I want out of them. And and for Scarlet's worldview, she's like, yep, that's just fine. Yeah. And Ashley says, you know, I really wish you wouldn't hire these people which are essentially in slavery. Yeah. And she says, which I thought, and I thought with her response, oh boy, here we go. We're getting to some real meat here. She says, you, you essentially, I'm paraphrasing, you hypocrite. Um, do you not remember that you were on a plantation with a bunch of slaves? Yeah. And I thought, again, yes, here we go. But then he says, oh, Scarlet, I never was into that. As soon as father was gone, I was going to set them all free. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, what a pathetic cop-out. Yeah. Because you're, you, as the audience, I think it's pretty clear you're supposed to go like, oh, yeah, yep, slavery. I guess slavery was wrong. Let's not think about it too hard. And, yeah, actually, oh, yeah, he didn't really want the slaves. So instead of actually examining the implications of slavery for these individual characters in a way that could be very meaningful and transcendent beyond 1939, the movie takes the easy way out. And, and I think it's to its detriment, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and of all the flawed characters, I, I, I call you know m- most of them flawed. Even even uh, uh, Olivia De Havilland's character, Melanie, right? Like she's all about like yeah. you know upholding the the plantation culture. So that's that's that is the context we're talking about, right? That is like the default of the people uh, that are uh, the story that's being told, right? This group of characters are pretty much all okay with that. Um, so that's her, her big fault. But other than that, like if you go beyond like post civil war, right, Melanie, she is shown to have, uh, some characteristics that are unusual, right? The fact that she does talk to Mrs. Miss Watley is, is really striking. Like you said, um, the dad is kind of the same way, right? Like the, the dad character at the beginning, he, uh, he says land is the only thing worth working for, fighting for, dying for. It's the only thing that lasts, right? And that, that kind of mm. comes back to Scarlet later in the film. But really what he means by land in this case is, you know, he worked hard for his land, but at the same time, he had slaves to take care of his land. He used right. the, the system in, in, in place to uh, get what he wanted. And all that being said, I really do like his performance. Um, he he has so much to do. Like you, I didn't really expect him to come back in as big of a way as he did. Um, but as Gerald O'Hara, Thomas Mitchell, he really brings it post his wife's death. In my opinion, um, he has like a delusional kind of a PTSD scene, right? Where like his wife has just died, yeah. and he is just like fondling her, her earrings. And he's talking about, well, let's get mother. She'll know what to do. Let's talk to mother. And he never, he never gets out of that mode, you know, until the moment that he dies kind of, uh, predictably and, and somewhat abruptly. But, uh, I would like to shout out his performance. I think it's really good. Um, and the score. Okay. Before we get any further, the score is fantastic. Like this is beautiful. Like in the way that John Williams, again, let's, let's star Wars name drop a little bit in the way that John Williams would, uh, completely master in something like, you know, star Wars or any Spielberg film that, that John Williams has scored ET, you know, jaws, he, he, the music really becomes its own supporting character because there are themes for people uh, the music takes over when the cinematography wants it to. Uh, it's just, yeah. it's it's really, really solid. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the the most powerful moment for me, at least with the music, is uh, right before intermission. Yeah. 
where uh, where Scarlet says, "I'm never going to be hungry again," and she's just she's come back and everything has you know been ransacked by the uh, Union Army and everything is gone and and I mean that's just the way it is. I I don't you know e- even in our modern times it's like well that's that's what happens in more to the loser so right. i don't i don't necessarily feel bad for her especially for her character but there is just a real moment of humanness where you think she's going to change and she says i will never be hungry again and there's this pan out and the the music swells to its main theme yeah and that's a that, that's one of the the shots that uh i mean I guess there's a few but that that shot continues to stick with me in no no small part due to the music I yeah think. i agree and that's the moment where you know one hour and 46 minutes in to me you know as we're getting into the back end of this film now that that for me is the end of the film that I want to watch. Yes. Honestly, like, uh, you know, the back half of this film is well-made as well. It's uh, telling a similar story. And, you know, like, like I think you, you mentioned to me off mic, it's just remarkable that this movie is almost four hours long and it's a whole novel, right? Like they tell the whole story um, and nothing, nothing feels like it should have been cut it's just for me, right, not necessarily a novel or a film that I need to watch people make horrible decisions over and over and over, like watch that destruction and peril over and over and over. But yeah, I, yeah. I thought like right at an hour 46, like, bam, that's the, that's a last moment right there. And then I'm looking and it's right. like, oh, you know, two hours left. And I'm like, wowzers. <laughs> or uh, yeah. So um, let's talk about the back half of the film. Um, we get Scarlett uh, taking the lead, uh, becoming... Uh, the man of the house in in a lot of ways, right? And um, <laughs> the opening shot of the second half is uh, the white women picking cotton, right, out in the fields along alongside yeah. the the slaves that are left, the the three that have not run away uh, as as they put, but we would say emancipated, freed. Uh, thank goodness. Um, and uh, there's a line in there. I guess things like hands and ladies don't matter anymore as they pick the cotton, right? Yeah. And that's a great. You know, there, there's a big turning point in this movie where you just mentioned, which is now they have to deal with the fact that their idealized, you know, picturesque culture is shattered, gone, never coming back. And that's the part of the conversation that's missing if you just read the opening crawl and then you stop there with anger. It is a thing to be angry about that people would and maybe still do think about this like that. But the rest of the movie really undoes that over and over and over again in a lot of ways. You know, you can talk about how this movie isn't what you might want it to be in regards to the depiction of black slaves and the physical abuse and the amount of it and the degree of it and all of that. But I think in the end, right, what I walk away with is like, this is certainly worth watching because it's super important and it does a lot of things really well. Um, But at the same time, the last hour of the movie kind of things unravel, right? Like things unravel for mm. Scarlet and Rhett in a lot of ways. They, they finally find their way together for good. Um, and, you know, he convinces her to marry uh, after she's lost another husband. Um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in this back half, but I will say like the things that I'm going to remember are like everybody dies. Like so many people yeah. die in the back half of this movie. what do you think about like the last hour or so? Uh, it's just a, it's a bloodbath, but without yeah. any blood. Everyone just, like you said. Well, there's a little bit of blood. 
Well, uh, there is a little bit of blood. It's true. I guess that's uh, maybe not in the last hour strictly, but um, there's a really interesting scene where a Union... We don't know if he's a deserter, really, although the film kind of hints at that, but this Union soldier comes... And he's essentially coming to ransack and, you know, maybe take advantage physically of Scarlet. I'd, you know, it's not really, it doesn't get to that point um, because as he's this intruder kind of marauding in her house, she takes a revolver that um, Rhett had given her earlier in the film and puts a ball of forty-four caliber lead in his face. Yeah. And the film doesn't dwell on that shot, but I do think it's noteworthy that that his bloody face is in living color for a split second. Um, and, and from an era where violence is frequently off screen, you know, where it's like the guy, the bad guy pulls the gun or whatever, and then the camera pans away, and then you hear the gunshot. This is in stark contrast to that thing, and right. I think to, to very good effect. Um, again, showing that, you know, uh, here we go hitting the, the war themes again. But that, you know, the, the atrocities and tragedies of war don't necessarily stop when, when the peace treaty is signed. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, that kind of trauma continues. Um, but, yes, there is more more death. Uh, Melanie ends up dying eventually. Um, the Rhett and Scarlet have a child who dies oh my tragically. Gosh. I, that, that was the one that really did like, not, not in a way that like, you know, I have daughters and of course that's affecting as a yeah. plot point, but I was like, like, stop killing people. I am exhausted. Right. Like, and perhaps that's the point, right? Perhaps the point is at the end, you're like, yes, the life is sucked out of you and you're drained and the, the destruction is undeniably piled up in front of you. But as a viewer, I was like, please please stop, like stop it, you know? Well, and, and, you know, I think it's interesting from, again, from our modern lens, that seems to be an indicator to me, the way I'm interpreting that now is that these people, because they've never, they never looked themselves in the mirror or they never had an honest discussion with each other and went, no, duh. Why? Of course this was bound to happen to us. We've been living wicked self-centered lives. We thrived off of the misfortune of other people of course, we're going to be struck by tragedy, and so and and that seems to be what it is until the film's closing, really tragic last scene. I yeah. think, um, where thankfully no one else dies, at least not physically, and and so I. But again, like you said, Travis, it just it keeps happening over and over, and it does it does become emotionally exhausting watching yeah. this movie. Yeah, like we've hinted at, right? Like these are pretty much all deeply faulted characters um and they are also deeply complicated characters so we have no uh, let's say this we have no satisfying arcs in this movie to be had except maybe melanie right right? i mean she she arguably gets better as the film goes along um but i mean like rhett and scarlet in their own way like i think you said vacillate and and there are some really compelling well-acted brutally uh, emotional moments uh and something i wrote i wrote down that i realized in that sequence um you know not after the daughter dies where you see clark gable at his at the end of his rope you know and it's just so well acted because he is the strong tough man and as an actor i'm looking at him like you made yourself nothing in this scene you know you're a puddle of yeah complete tears and mush and all the strength is gone like no no mortal man can stand strong uh, in that moment, nor should they, right? Like that is a thing to be mourned in a special deep way. 
But beyond that scene, right, we see, again, things just become calcified and numbed as death continues to be- befall these people. And Rhett has this scene with, with, with Scarlet where he's drunk and she comes downstairs and he, uh, you know, verbally, uh, you know, attacks her in a lot of ways. He, he, but here's the thing, right? Rhett is a pretty terrible, misogynistic, um, you know, uh, selfish character who consistently tells the truth like almost all the way throughout the movie like he is a bad guy really like and admittedly i you know i'm out for rhett butler but he tells the truth so he tells scarlet to her face you know exactly what she is and he says you know he puts her his hands on the sides of her head and he he could be trying to physically you know like intimidate her but more than that he's trying to like impress upon her like if i could just squeeze the ashley you know this desire for love that you should never have and will never have out of you i would you know kind of a thing um and then obviously like th- this scene goes places that you know th- <laughs> This movie has all the darkness in it to me. You know what I mean? Like all of it, right? Like this is an implied rape scene essentially, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's just this horrible moment, right? Where they have this conversation and he, he does threaten to like physically hurt her. Although I don't really think we're supposed to believe that he will because he does love her um, in a very complicated, ugly way. And then he just like grabs her and takes her upstairs and right, right. The ensuing plot points are like, he leaves with the daughter and she's pregnant when he comes back. So what are we supposed to do with that information? Um, so yeah, it's, it's an ugly story in a lot of ways. No, absolutely. And that's what makes that, that ending for them that much more tragic. I mean, because, you know, when he comes back home and confronts that he has, she says, you know, I'm pregnant. And he says, who's the father, you know? Well, it's yours, of course. And we're taken, it just makes sense in the context of the movie that that is true. And so, Unfortunately, you know, there's a there's an act. They have an argument as they they always do throughout this movie, and and um, she loses the child to a miscarriage because she falls down the stairs or he pushes her. You know, he moves out of the way just enough, and he says, right, the line is the most important thing. Go ahead. Yeah, he says, uh, you know, like I hope you do have an accident, and then yeah, right after she falls, and that's when, yeah. and actually that's the moment. Actually, in the wake of that. That's what breaks him, if I'm not mistaken. That yeah. he's he's off screen mourning for the daughter in a very very you know deep way. But that's the moment that I was referring to before when you know we see him like at the the end of his humanity essentially. But yeah, let let's wrap up. Let's I I I'm getting all the I'm getting PTSD uh, talking about <laughs> all <laughs> all of the trauma I experienced watching the trauma. Um, the story ends and it ends in a again an Oscar clip kind of Oscar real fashion, right? There's two lines here that that really like resonate in a lot of ways and and they just they stick in our culture as a cultural touchstone. You want to talk about that last scene with them? Yeah, so he's he's had it with her because Melanie has has died. And as they're over there, he's still at, at that point while Melanie's dying, I think the film is leading us to believe Rhett is still committed to Scarlet. He still loves her and he wants her to love him. Yeah. But but Scarlet comes out of that room where Melanie is dying, has died, and she just falls into Ashley's arms and just, you know, wants to mourn with him. And that is the point where Rhett is just done, you know? Yeah. 
And so in the ensuing conversation that Ashley and Scarlett has, she realizes, oh my gosh, I can never have Ashley. And I think she really, for the first time, she actually does a little bit yeah. come to her senses and realize this is, it's just in my head. I've invented something that's not real. It's never going to happen. It's unhealthy. I have to, I, I got to go to Rhett. That is the person that loves me. That's the only thing that makes sense. Right. And so she, like a true tragedy, she chases after him and he says, no, yeah. I'm done. And it's not, I don't think there, you, you know, you, I, I think you could make a, a compelling argument for the opposite point that I'm trying to make. But my take from that is she she says to him things that she has never said in earnest uh, before in the movie. She says, I'm sorry to him, and she right. freaking means it, yep. I think, this time. Vivian Lee is selling that line in, in a much different way than when she tries to fake it with other men, including Rhett, throughout the movie. That's right. And she is begging him to uh, come to stay. I love you. I just want to be with you. And wh- what is going to become of me if, if you leave? And then he gives the famous line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And it is, I think, not just because of that word, you know, which was controversial to have in a movie yep. at, at that time in that era of the code, but that that's the appropriate, you know, we talk about language sometimes in, in movies, Travis, and you know, that that to me is, that's the exact, there's no better, <laughs> We jo- you know, in our little intro, we talked about one of the other alternatives, one of many that they came up to try to appease the code authority. And there's nothing that, words have meaning. Yeah. And damn means something very damn different, frankly, than um, than whoop or <laughs> uh, heck. Yeah. Or, what you know, it, it, it has its own meaning. And, and Clark Gable, uh, man, he, he sells that line. And to me, that is such a definitive answer to where that character stands. He says, I am, I am done. I, I, it's, it's over. I think that's why the, that strong of language is used, to indicate the kind of finality with which he intends to walk out of her life forever, no matter what she says. Yeah. He has closed the door on her, and unfortunately, her, her last lines involve her um, you know, concocting in her mind a, a plan to to win him back somehow. But it, it just, it, it rings of more tragedy because it, it seems in vain and another fantasy. Like she's, she had this brief moment of clarity mm-hmm. and unfortunately she, she, she goes back. She, she retards back to that, that lower level of thinking. Yeah. After all, tomorrow is another day. And you're like, no, Ugh. it's not. It's it's really really yeah. not you know like you it's not it is it's if you ever should have known like it's too late it's now it's right now you know um, so on that beautiful but tragic and painful and exhausting and long note uh, let's go home Justin shall we <laughs> let's bring it on home. Well, um, as if we didn't, you know, thread this needle beautifully like two uh, verbally, you know, gymnastic geniuses uh, throughout the episode. Uh, this section is entitled, <laughs> yeah, I've uh, been known as a genius and a gymnast and a verbalist all at different times <laughs> and in different places. Is it worth your time? That's what we're calling this section. This is our final, final concise review and rating of a film from the 30s and man this was uh i'm glad we left this till the end in a lot of ways because yes for me uh this movie requires a ton of work 
from you as a viewer. And yep. with every genre we've touched, with every different director and kind of space and scope of movie that we've touched, this by far is the most uh, endurance tested you'll be as a viewer of all the 10 films we've done and of like a lot of films that you could ever watch. Um, and so in a lot of ways, uh, I, I do think that the current conversation uh, resulted in a better environment to watch this movie. I think people talking about it is better than people taking it as we assume it should be taken. Um, the preface that I saw really served this thing up well for me. And this is my final, like my final take on the movie is the first thing is I just don't like the people in it. And therefore it's going to be hard for me to tell you, you should rewatch this once a year. It's just that kind of movie, right? Where it might be yeah. a great film, but it's, it might not be an infinitely rewatchable one for, for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, for me being like, I just dislike these people and I, I hate watching them uh, be terrible to others and cause destruction and all that. On another note, um, which is, you know, maybe the the buzzier uh, part of the conversation, I don't think that the the recent controversy and kind of the reappraisal, let's call it, of this film and whether it should be accepted and, and streamable and all of that, uh, I don't think it resulted in the wrong decision. I think people should watch this movie and people should watch this movie and do the work because really like there are so many good films out there that tell the story that people uh, are, are yearning for this story to tell, right? The story of abused, mutilated, and just physically and emotionally repressed black slave characters at the center of the story, right? Like those films, those books, those stories, we need to keep telling them. We need to find more of them that need to be told and tell them over and tell them louder and in greater detail, all of that, right? But this isn't that story, right? Like that's not the purpose of this story. Um, and that may be a fault, right? Like that it goes through such great lengths to to catch such a scope and yet it really does in a lot of ways miss that part. Um, but my, my advice to anybody would be watch this movie and, and if you can watch the preface, do a little bit of research, get, get the context needed to understand, um, this film in a better way and then go watch 12 years a slave, you know, maybe not back to back. Cause you might want to jump yeah. off a bridge or something, but like there are, th there's a breadth of stories that exist. And, uh, this is not an argument that enough of them exist and they don't need to make them anymore. Absolutely. These stories need to keep being told and, and in, and in greater numbers for, you know, representation's sake and truthfulness sake and all that. But um, how often would I rewatch this? I will probably not watch this movie from beginning to end ever again uh, because it was painful and exhausting and the characters uh, annoy me in a fundamental way. But there are sequences I might rewatch again because they deeply affected me. I think the things it says about war are infinitely valuable and need to be said over and over and over again. Um, and you know what, Justin, I think we've had a conversation about this before, but I, what came to mind was, uh, what's the Mel Gibson movie that I trash on because of this reason? It's that the Patriot. No, or we were soldiers. No, beyond that it's, he directed it, but he's not in it. It's got no. the, 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 the one where the guy climbs the cliff and brings people back and it's more recent. It's Oh, Hacksaw Ridge. Okay. Hacksaw Ridge is a film. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Here's the deal. Okay. Yeah. Where Gone with the Wind may be faulted, may 
present a uh, perhaps a diluted or picturesque version of the of the Antebellum South at times, most notably in the in the opening crawl and specific characters. What it does incredibly well, and I think the most important thing is it 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 shows you what war is and the toll that it takes on a society and an individual and a, a human soul, you know, in so many ways successfully. And a film like Hacksaw Ridge, by contrast, is so incredibly terrible at that. And I'll tell you why. The movie's about a pacifist, a guy who said, I'm, I'm you know, getting drafted, going to go to war, but I, it's against my religion, against my moral code to do violence. So the whole film is about him not doing violence. He goes and he brings people down and he saves the wounded and he saves a ton of lives and he does this incredibly heroic feat. And you know what Mel Gibson does as the director of this film? He shows you every piece of gore and flying intestinal blood splatter. And again, like Justin, like you said, it's not that that's not necessarily a reality, but what is the point of the story, right? What is it saying? Well, that's a story that purports mm. to tell you that you know, a man with uh, a, an air and a moral code that guides him to be a, a, a maker of peace and not a maker of war, somehow with endurance and incredible strength and fortitude made it through war without, without firing a bullet and did an amazing thing. But the but the but the movie just it it divulges itself it it wallows and it just rolls around in the fact that it can get away with the blood and gore. Gone with the Wind is the opposite of that, right? Like it's almost a bloodless film in a lot of ways, but you walk away from it thinking, let's never ever ever do that again. So that's my ultimate takeaway, Justin. What do you have to say? Yeah, it's tremendous. I think for a movie that has such a scale and a scope that can pull back the camera and look at the world, supposedly, that if we're truly evaluating this, that it does so, but has a big blind spot. And that blind spot is for every African-American character in this movie. Yes, um, Mammy deserves the Oscar yes. that, uh, that, that she earned. Um, absolutely. But there is, I, I think this movie's big fault, li like you alluded to, is for being so big and being such a grand story that there, I, I feel like we could have stood for about an hour less of, of white people dying and an hour more of what do our what do our black characters actually think when the white people aren't around? Yeah. What 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 are their experiences more? Because you get some really interesting, I think, and sometimes subversive in a good way. Uh, commentary for them. So there's the guy. Uh, oh man, is it Big Sam? Is that the uh, the the sort of foreman of the slaves that Scarlet meets in the in the street when I think he's when the war is going on? As, uh, Big Sam or Big Jim? Uh, I get them mixed Big up. Big Sam. Yeah, there's pork. One of them's a made pork, up character. pork is the one who gets Big the Sam. watch, okay. and Big Sam is the one who's yeah, like the field foreman. Right. So when she meets him, you know, she's saying, "What what is going on?" And he says. We are going to go dig a ditch for the white folks to hide in. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, there is not a more subversive good. Because he says it with the sort of like, quote unquote, happy slave appearance. But I don't know how you can hear those words and think, oh, he's just a simple-minded guy. He's absolutely getting his digs in. Now, you, you, uh, of course, the argument is absolutely valid. Does that obviate, you know, the crimes against 
um, African Americans that, that this movie seems to just wash over? Absolutely not. But I think it is interesting that that line is even included instead of just having him say like, well, we're going to go dig a trench to help the war effort or something. Yeah. No, he takes an opportunity um, to the, collectively, the movie takes an opportunity for him to make fun of, of the people that enslave him. And, and so, unfortunately, though, the movie whiffs a lot of other opportunities to, to really represent African Americans well. I think the, the shining example of this is when Prissy is with Scarlett and Melanie's going to have her baby. And, and Prissy originally tells the doctor, don't worry, I've delivered babies lots of times. And I thought, wow, again, it, it, if the line had just stood there and that had been true for the whole movie, I thought, that's great. Scarlet is shown to be useless yep. despite her, um, you know, her upbringing and her privilege and all that, while Prissy's actually experienced with the things of this world that are actually useful. Yeah. I thought, this is fantastic. Unfortunately, for, for no good reason except that Scarlet is forced into a situation where she has to help, Prissy is later proved to be a liar which is just not, in a movie that already has so little representation of African-Americans, just felt like a, a real crime. Yeah. Um, and, and so like you, you alluded to with um, mentioning how many slaves either, you know, were emancipated and ran away, thank goodness, from Terra, or were, you know, forcibly conscripted to service for the Confederacy somehow. You know, I didn't find it totally unbelievable that those three characters, Pork, Prissy, and, and Mammy, would stay behind because everyone's different. And, you know, unfortunately, what what did happen in the South, right? Not, not unfortunately, every, every African-American person did not leave for greener pastures. Right. And unfortunately, we're just in a new form of, of slavery, essentially, for for a, a lot longer um, after the Civil War was over. So I didn't find that necessarily unbelievable that those characters would stay behind, but I think because the movie doesn't do service to them and doesn't bother to say, this is what those people probably actually felt. You know, I know that Victor Fleming was encouraged by, I think, the uh, NAACP um, when this movie was in production. Please, please, they pleaded with him, hire an advisor that is African-American. Right. Hire somebody to advise you on this movie who has a real black perspective because you're hiring these people that are experts in Southern culture and wardrobes. But what good is that if you miss out of the people that were, you know, the most viciously mistreated? And unfortunately, the movie never did. And I think that that shows. And, and that is the, of course, that's what's being talked about now and, and is the glaring issue. So like you said, I would agree. This movie does say some things that are good, um, especially about war. And bigger picture, whether it intends to or not, it says this society that breeds these kinds of people had to come down because it just breeded self-centered, blind, abusive, horrible people, essentially, that could care less if they um, uh, hurt, murdered, or otherwise abused other human beings. Um, but unfortunately, that that message is really diluted by the sort of the inability for the film to really confront those things. And yeah, of course, it's not it's not Twelve Years a Slave. This movie is not Roots, you know. And those those it, it doesn't purport to be that. But I think it's a shame that it takes again such a wide picture at supposedly this era and does so without examining really the main driver for why the war had to happen in the first place. Right. Um, still, for that reason, I'm, I'm glad to have watched it, and I would agree with you. 
it, it just so that you can be better informed. Um, <laughs> buckle up if you're if you're sick and got the flu or something, yeah, and got to stay in bed all day. Hey, if you got four hours, you might as well put it on. And just so you can be a part of the conversation, at least there's still a lot of uh, c- cinematically, just as a as a production and as a picture, there's a lot to be commended. But there are absolutely plenty of issues, um, both with regards to race and humanity and um, just tragedy um, that need to be d- discussed and I think taken on their own merits too. So what, I, I think I'm with you, Travis, which is probably a little little boring that we're not maybe more contradictory with one another, but I, I don't think I'll ever really sit down and watch this whole movie again unless it's you know with somebody, oh, please, I haven't seen this before. Will you watch this with me? And I'll just make sure that we have um, at least 30 years uh, left in our lives so that we have enough time to finish it. Um, so that's that's sort of where I stand with this. It, it's the mammoth of a movie, right? It's a, and, and I think it has earned that place. But like, like we said in the beginning, I think that, that the, the trouble is that it's not given enough prefaces. And I think yeah. that is really kind of reflecting on it more. I think it is wonderful that HBO Max is doing that. And I think, frankly, you don't have to come at this movie. We don't we don't have to just do a 180, I don't think, and, and say, you know what? No, this movie is a piece of garbage because it doesn't uh, accurately portray or give enough screen time to African Americans who played such an important role in, in the kind of story if this was, you know, at all a semblance of reality. Well, that's true and absolutely valid, I don't think that just eliminates the, the the more worthy parts of the movie. I think it makes it very problematic and adds to it being painful to watch. Yeah. But I, I, I think having a preface, having having this be more of a, a, a communal setting, you know, whether that's in a college classroom or or if your old um, you know, art theater is showing classic movies or something, th- this is still a wonderful movie to watch and to, and and exactly for the purpose of having those conversations and hopefully those conversations move us forward. Yeah. And make us confront those kinds of things, whether it's white privilege or representation in movies or or the actual civil war yeah. and unresolved um elements of that that we still see in our culture this movie's got a lot to say and i think it's only gonna as we've shown over how many days have we been here now talking about this movie travis i yeah. mean it, it there's no there's no end seemingly to what you can discuss with this movie so i encourage everyone to at least go go check it out and and think for yourself and see what you think the movie's saying Yes, a college uh, college film class, an old movie theater, or even a podcast. Huh. I see what you did there. That was uh, that was a whopper. But uh, I think all really good stuff to talk through with you, man, and uh, a heck of a way to end the series. Um, I've so much enjoyed this. Uh, I hope you listeners have as well. Justin, do you have any? kind of parting words for our listeners on the 10th episode thanks for uh, however long you've been on this journey with us thanks and we hope that uh you'll stick around and, and see what else we're going to talk about next yes stick around for some heists we'll see you next week bye let the movie speak
Hey, since you're still here and still listening, thank you, by the way, we'd like to ask an additional favor of you. We have social media. It's a thing on the internet. And all you need to do is find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and like and subscribe. I know this is annoying, but we have to ask you because we want more people to hear the show. In addition to that, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we would greatly appreciate it. See you next week. Bye.